and welcome to Poetry for Those Who Don't. This is a podcast for anyone who's never written a poem, but maybe always wanted to try. I'm Jenna. I should start by telling you guys that I am not, in fact, a poet. I mostly write fiction in my life, but having turned 30, I decided it was time to learn a new skill, and I figured poetry would be the perfect thing. And because it's more fun to do stuff with your friends, I have roped in my lovely assistant. I am the owner of Unemployed Harlequin Productions. I'm a producer on the podcast. And I worked on an awful Star Trek gambling game for about two months. We are, of course, going to ignore the fact that in the Federation there is no such thing as money, so there should not be gambling on a Star Trek game. Can we talk about the episode of Deep Space Nine where the bartender tried to get himself enlisted as an essential service when there was a plague going around? <laughs> I haven't watched that. Real and that happened. I, I absolutely believe you, but I'm only on season three of DS9, so I have a way to go. And on that note, let's get started. How are you this week? I'm doing all right. Um, out in A&E yesterday, but otherwise we're, we're doing good. We're doing good. Out in A&E and back already. That's a real professional there, isn't it? <laughs> I couldn't, you know, miss this. Oh, first no. episode and all. It's not like we have loads of other things going on at the moment or anything that might distract you. I, I'm easily distracted. This is true. I have spent a lot of the day watching cartoons. Yeah, let's not tell your boss that. I'm not that... Well... We'll see what gets out. <laughs> so I was thinking, honestly, obviously, we all know what the the major theme of life is at the moment. I'm sure it's affecting everybody in their own ways. Um, and I've been thinking about the power of poetry, and I found a poem that is supposed to be an antidote to the general malaise and sort of terror, and in particular, the sort of media frenzy of miserable news that I think has probably hit everybody at this stage. Um, I think if there's anything that we are desperate for right now, it's an antidote, so I would love to hear it. Yeah. All right. This is a poem called Sometimes by Sheena Pugh. Sometimes things don't go, after all, from bad to worse. Some years, muscadel faces down frost. Green thrives, the crops don't fail. Sometimes a man aims high and all goes well. A people sometimes will step back from war. Elect an honest man, decide they care enough that they can't leave some stranger poor. Some men become what they were born for. Sometimes our best efforts do not go amiss. Sometimes we do as we meant to. The sun will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seemed hard frozen. May it happen for you. Were that, that the world we lived in right now? I know, it feels like a mildly prescient poem. When you get to, you know, maybe people will elect an honest man. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, that's that's the line that hit me. Um, not thinking about any elections in particular, are we? No, no, not at all. I'm sure that whatever election, local or national, that you've had in your particular constituency has gone perfectly good for the good guys. <laughs> oh, if wishing made it so. You do a wish. <laughs> Do a big wish right now. Maybe if we all collectively do a wish, it'll actually happen. But no, I, I, I love, I do love the, the theme behind it, and that like, just like some fate in humanity. Um, we could all use a bit of that right now. And like, I all, fate, all credit to humanity. Um, uh, when you know we, we had a, a brief hospital scare yesterday, and you know neighbors were great, uh, waiting for the ambulance with us. All the hospital staff were great. You know, like. There's good people doing good things out there. You just got to look for it. Yeah, I do think it's very easy to get sort of sucked into the misery of the whole situation. When you actually stop and look around, what you see is people trying to help each other out. 
and you see people wanting the best and wanting to do the right thing. And I think that's the, that's, yeah, it's harder to see, but it's more important to hold on to. Yeah. Like, like people want to do good. People have some inherent goodness in them, you know, just a nice light topic for, to get right into straight away. What, what's the inherent morality of man? <laughs> Does man have a morality? Let's hope so. Let's find out. But you know, that's the power of poetry. It's quite a short poem, but the it really, like, it really does. Sort of reading it out loud really does make me feel slightly less hopeless about the world as we know it. So you know, and, you know, this this is why there's poetry. This is why we're here. That we, you know, po poetry. There's the whole you know stigma of like it's it's what you studied in school and you never look at it again. But there's real power in words and and the placement of words and that. It's a thing that can be accessible to anybody, um, and that's why we're here to, to... We are not people with a background in poetry, but we we know that there is power behind it, we know there is meaning behind it, um, there's joy to be had in writing it, and you know we're here to ex experience that as much for the first time as anyone else listening is. I think it's funny that you mentioned school, actually, because I was thinking probably the last time I wrote a poem was in Irish class, in school, and it was called Nadil Yoga, or something and it was about autumn leaves and it was one of these unbelievably twee experiences that put me off writing poetry for the next <coughs> years um <laughs> so but with actually with that in mind i have i have our prompt if you're ready to get to our our the hard part i suppose you could say where we have to now think about the poem we're going to write ourselves so what is our prompt for today's episode i'd love to hear it our prompt this week is seven days seven lines which is about as basic as it sounds we each must write a poem in which each line or sentence deals with a different day of the week. And I do kind of feel like this is immediately reminding me of those acrostic poems you have to write in school, like come Easter, you have to do an E line and an A line and an S line. So I'm going to not do that. I think step one, not do that and not fail to come back to school. Okay, step one, do not write poems from school. It's a good step one. Step two, probably don't write acrostic poems. We are adults. Am I allowed to make up my own days or do I have to use the official ones? Well, I mean, define make up your own days. Well, tomorrow, yesterday. Ooh. It's Wiggins Day, Leif Erikson Day. I mean, I kind of like that idea. I think, yeah, you have to, you can come up with seven different days that are, but they're kind of, they have to be real days, like days that actually exist. Oh, so no Blurns Day? <laughs> I think that might be pushing the boundaries of our particular prompt this week a little bit. Is that not what we're here for, to, to push the boundaries of poetry? I think let's learn how to write poems and then start pushing the boundaries. This is like Picasso. People kind of say, um, oh, Picasso broke all the rules. I'm like, yeah, but he learned how to do them first. Okay, I will learn to do some rules before I break the rules with hammers. Exactly. We can become beat poets later. There's plenty of time. And if you want to follow along with our prompt this week, you can send your poems to submissions at unemployedharlequin.com. That's submissions at unemployedharlequin.com. being our first podcast, I thought I would tell you about another first today. I want to talk about the first woman who described herself as a professional poet in Britain. And this is a woman called Emilia Lanya, who published a poetry volume called Salve Deus Rex Judeorum in 1611. For those of you who don't speak Latin, like me, that translates to Hail God, King of the Jews, which should give you some idea of the general subject area. There had been three other women who had published poetry collections in the British Isles before Amelia Lanyon, 
Isabella Whitney had published an anthology she had written with some friends. Then Anne Dowrich and Elizabeth Melville also published books. But Lanier was the first woman to call herself a professional poet. She wanted to attract a patron who might sponsor her work and presumably ease the financial situation that her husband had placed her in. The book which she published contains 10 short poems, as well as one significantly longer poem after which the book is named. Each of the 10 short poems is dedicated to one rich society woman who might have become a potential patron. And the first poem was dedicated to the queen, Elizabeth I, essentially praising her many divine qualities and virtues. For you have rifled nature of her store, and all the goddesses have dispossessed of those rich gifts which they enjoyed before. But now, great queen, in you they all do rest. If now they strived for the golden ball, Paris would give it you before them all. From Juno you have state and dignity, from warlike palace, wisdom, fortitude, and from fair Venus all her excellencies. With their best parts your highness is imbued. How much are we to honour those that springs from such rare beauty in the blood of kings? And so it goes on, listing the wonderful things about the Queen, talking about how lucky England is to be guided by her, and so forth. To us, the language might sound a little strange and formal, but it is beautiful too, and there's a wonderful rhythm that makes the poem easy enough to read, even with the style of the language. And even though you guys can't see it now, if you look up a copy of the text, you will notice a rather relaxed attitude to spelling back in the 1600s, which means that actually Langer's poems are much easier to understand if you read them out loud which I highly recommend you do. And don't worry about all the people who are looking at you like you're a crazy person. You never know. They might discover that they enjoy Lania's poetry as much as you do. What I find interesting about these verses is the fact that they mention the goddesses of ancient Rome, Juno and Venus, but that the story she is referencing is a Greek story. In the tale, Hera, here called Juno, and Aphrodite, or as she's called in this poem, Venus, and Pallas Athena all fight to be named the most beautiful woman in the land. They choose a man named Paris to judge the contest, and he eventually chooses Aphrodite, who promises him the hand of a woman named Helen in return for the prize. It is the story which starts the ten-year Trojan War and produces one of the most famous Greek tales in the world, the Iliad, and the story of the wooden horse of Troy. I find it interesting that this is the comparison that Lanier chose for Queen Elizabeth, suggesting that she was as powerful as the goddesses who had manipulated humans into this conflict elevated above the war games that men played all around them in the 17th century. But the story is also proof that Lanier had enough of a classical education to know about the ancient goddesses and to use those as her chief comparisons for the queen and her virtue. And it fits in with the scholars and academics who, over the years, have discovered references to a wide range of influences in Lanier's poetry, from Edmund Spencer to Chaucer and all the way back to Ovid. She was clearly a thoughtful, educated woman with some things to say about society. And yet, chances are that you've never heard of her. So who exactly was Emilia Lanier? Emilia Lanier was born Emilia Bassano in Bishopsgate in England in 1569. Being born in the 16th century meant that she was a contemporary of Shakespeare. And indeed, some people think that she may have been the dark lady that he referred to in some of his sonnets. But we're here to talk about her poetry this week, rather than his. So let's not dwell on that too much. Lanier's father was appointed a royal musician which put her in the kind of social class that would, in the late 1500s, have given her access to reading and education for women, which explains the various classical references throughout her poems. She became the mistress of a cousin of Elizabeth I and became pregnant by him, giving birth to a son named Henry. Before long, Lanier was married to her own cousin, Alfonso, who was also a musician at the court. Whether this marriage was Amelia's idea or whether it was someone else's, it turned out to be pretty terrible for her. 
Alfonso was something of a waster, and before long, the couple was deeply in debt. Lania also gave birth to another child, a daughter this time, named Odilia, but she unfortunately died before her first birthday. It was after this, at the age of 42, when Lania published her book of poetry, Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, which has been described by modern scholars as proto-feminist. As you could probably guess from the verses I've already read, Lania was of the opinion that women were strong enough to take control of their own story and even manipulate the stories of the men around them. But more than that, the title poem in this collection is considered by some to potentially be the first feminist work published in England, because it tells the story of the crucifixion of Christ from a woman's perspective, and particularly discusses the different ways in which men and women responded to Jesus at the end of his life. When spiteful men with torments did oppress the afflicted body of this innocent dove, or women seeing how much they did transgress by tears, by sighs, by cries, entreat, nay prove, what may be done among the thickest press. They labour still these tyrants' hearts to move, in pity and compassion to forbear. Her poetry praises female virtues, highlighting the value of softness and tenderness in the world. Through the rest of the poem, she expresses a clear desire for a world in which men and women can be different, but still be treated equally. Honestly, I think she'd be a little disappointed to discover that we're still fighting for the same things over 400 years later. This is that great almighty Lord that made both heaven and earth and lives forevermore. By him the world's foundation first was laid. He framed the things that never were before. The sea within his bounds by him is stayed. He judges all alike, both rich and poor. All might, all majesty, all love, all law remains in him that keeps all worlds in all. These lines seem pretty clear to me. Lange is asking us to look at the world with the eyes of someone who doesn't judge it and to believe that God didn't judge it either. Lanier's work caused a stir when it was published, because in the centre of the poem, she takes up the subject of original sin, and the moment when Adam and Eve ate the apples from the tree of knowledge, and for which they were subsequently thrown out of the Garden of Eden. She points out that while Eve is blamed, unfairly, she argues, for the fall of man, no blame is attached to Adam, who also ate the apple. In Elizabethan times, and in some areas of the world today, men were viewed as stronger than women, both mentally and physically, and so, Lanier argues, Adam should have been better able to resist temptation than Eve, which means that really, he should take more of the blame than her. This is a radical retelling of the story, which has always blamed Eve for seducing Adam into disobeying God, and was described by some contemporaries as heretical, because it was so far from the standard interpretation. The subtle serpent that our sex betrayed, before our fall so sure a plot had laid. That undiscerning ignorance perceived no guile or craft that was by him intended. For, had she known of what we were bereaved, to his request she had not condescended. But she, poor soul, by cunning was deceived. No hurt therein her harmless heart intended. For she alleged God's word, which he denies. They should die, but even as gods, be wise. But surely Adam cannot be excused. Her fault, though great, yet he was most to blame that weakness offered strength might have refused. Being lord of all the greater was his shame. Although the serpent's craft had her abused, God's holy word on all his actions framed. For he was lord and king of all the earth, before poor Eve had either life or breath. Lanier is making the point that Eve erred out of ignorance, and that because she didn't have malicious intention when she fell for the serpent's trick, it's not fair to blame her for eating the apple. Meanwhile, she asks a deceptively simple question. If Adam was lord of the world before God had even made Eve, then shouldn't he have been wiser and stronger, and therefore shouldn't he have known not to eat the apple? 
Lanier is making the point that Eve erred out of ignorance and that because she didn't have malicious intention when she fell for the serpent's tree, it's not fair to blame her for eating the apple. Meanwhile, she asks a deceptively simple question. If Adam was lord of the world before God had even made Eve, then shouldn't he have been wiser and stronger, and therefore, shouldn't he have known not to eat the apple? Whenever we think about Lanier's interpretation of this story, whether we agree or disagree with her assessment, what is interesting is the fact that she was making the argument in the first place. It was a bold act on the part of anyone of the time, and bolder still for a woman to stand up and make such a claim. In a world where religion was one of the most powerful forces in society, and in which people still believed that the right to rule was when given by God. Possibly, it was this daring, outspoken argument which stopped any society women from offering Lanier their patronage. Or maybe they just didn't like the poems. Either way, it didn't work and Lanier was forced to find an alternative means of making ends meet. Her husband died two years after her book of poetry was published, and she began to make a living instead by running a school. However, there were some disputes about the rent, and Lanier was arrested twice between 1617 and 1619, which destroyed the school's reputation and the business folded. Lanier lived until 1645, when she died at the ripe old age of 76, though she never published another book of poetry, so far as we know. And I find that to be quite sound. It was a woman with talent and passion, who had strong, daring views about the world. But because she was trapped in the cycle of trying to pay her husband's debts and look after her children and survive the dangerous times of the 1600s, she didn't have the time or the space to produce any more poetry. And I can't help but wonder what she might have written if only she'd had what Virginia Woolf deemed so essential for writing, a room of one's own. Welcome to the final, most embarrassing part of this podcast, where we read you our poems. Hopefully, some of you have been playing along with the prompt, and you have versions of your own. If you do, we'd love to read them. Um, and in the interest of not embarrassing myself, I think I'm going to ask Jane to go first. So, Jane, why don't you read us your poem? This wasn't part of the deal. I was promised fame and notoriety, not poem reading. Uh, yeah, but that's how you get the fame, by reading the poem. Everybody knows poetry makes you famous these days. Well, I mean, if that's the case. Uh, my poem is untitled. Uh, morning brew, dread and meetings too. Work comes due, wish to say adieu. On the hump, reaching my peak frump. Lose the slump, farewell, Madam Grump. Toil askew, roasted bonds for two. Joy and jump, sandy feet go thump. Rest and sleep, and then I weep. Well, that's a depressing ending. Yeah, it's a Sunday. Sunday evenings are awful. I mean, I say this like I don't have Sunday evening blues in mine as well. So, <laughs> no. I guess we're on the same page. Well, let's hear your Sunday evening blues then. Oh, okay. I also do not have a title for my poem because I did not think about title. But anyway, existential dread on a Monday, psychologically dead by Tuesday. Wednesday is a washout, Thursday is a trial. Then Friday comes and we all start to smile. It's Saturday night fever, shake it on the dance floor. Then Sunday night blues, and we start once more. Oh, that's lovely. Why, thank you. So what did you have in mind when you were sitting down to actually write yours this week? I'm not going to lie to you. I did not expect to write a poem that A, had the days of the week in it, or B, rhymed in any form. So that was a surprise. It was like I hadn't thought about it, and then just suddenly I sat down and wrote the whole thing in about like three minutes, and that was pretty much it. 
Right. Just sort of came to you through the pen. Yeah. And like, I haven't necessarily, I think I wrote it on a Tuesday. I was feeling psychologically uh, not at my peak. And then it sort of flowed out in this subconscious like thing, which was odd, but it was fun. It was nice. It was easier than I thought it was going to be. When, when I sat down to write mine, I, before I had words or a sense of rhyme, I had a, a rhythm in my head of just ba 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 and I, I just really liked uh, that kind of bounce. Um, so, Do you know what's interesting? I think we both have a pretty similar rhythm to them. I think we might, actually. Because it's too long, too short, and then long again. Well, mine is three and five, three and five, all the way down. But there's, there's definitely, like, whatever it is about having to write a line a day obviously has given us a particular rhythm in our minds. So that would actually be really interesting. If anybody does decide to try this one, if you end up with a different rhythm, we'd love to see it because we've obviously gone down the same path in some ways. Yeah, I'm surprised ours have become as similar as they are. Um, even just like, you know, we've, we've definitely gotten the same sort of mood from each of the days. You know, I, I, I just think it's funny that like something so abstract a concept as a day has such a recognizable emotion tied to it that we've each recognized it. Well, particularly in like, modern times where technically nobody's going to work any well apart from obviously people who have very important jobs that they cannot do from home like doctors and grocery shop workers these kind of people but you know the vast majority of us who work on computers are at home so we could work on a sunday and take a tuesday off and we could completely transform the way we work are we but we haven't even like two months into lockdown we're still writing a poem that we would write in the middle of a perfectly normal working week in the before the end time which I think is really interesting about how deeply that rhythm is ingrained in our existence. Yeah, it's just like when when you're used to, you know, such a strict timetable like that from really four years on, um, like it just becomes part of that internal clock. It's hard to divorce it from how you live your life, or at least how you you think about the week. I've had a horrifying thought. Do tell. I love these. Does this mean that we're grown-ups? Please, no. Oh, I hope not. I'm writing poems about the week. I don't want to be a grown-up. Well, we'll have to... Um, I wonder I wonder if it's because the prompt is quite narrow. Because you have to do a line per day. If it had just been a poem, write a poem about the week. I wonder if that would have produced a different thing. I mean, it, I think my instinct would still have been, if not seven lines, at least in groups of seven. Well, that would be a very long poem if we're having groups of seven. Well, as in, like... Seven groups of things. Yeah. Interesting. Because I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't know because I haven't done it. But I don't necessarily. I think for me, the fact that it goes right a line per day is what has led to this format. So tell me about your rhyming. Um, did you like have particular rhyming in mind while you were writing it? Or is this something that just sort of naturally came out? No, it's just because I've always been interested in like the rhythm of speech. It's one of the reasons I like Shakespeare and I like Emilia Lani and those kind of things, because they're designed to be read out loud and they have these rhythms to them. That is, it's not exactly singing because I can't sing. I mean, I literally did an Ancestry 23andMe uh, DNA test that told me I'm 56% less likely than other people to have perfect pitch. So I, my genes tell me I can't sing, but I love, you know, rhythmic performances, if that is not too pretentious in phrase. Um, and so it was just the kind of the role. It made more sense if bits of it rhymed. 
Yeah, I can definitely hear like just um, the rhyming contributing to rhythm and um, giving it um, sort of a, a more natural pace. Yeah, you came up with four rhymes, though. That's good. Do you do the thing when you, if you are going to rhyme it, did you write out all the words that rhyme and then pick ones you liked? Uh, I use the rhyming dictionary. Um, I cannot be yours. I, I, I can't. I, I'm not going to sit here and try and remember all the things that rhyme with hump. Listeners, is that cheating? <laughs> I, I kind of locked myself in the, into a pattern early on, and it was kind of difficult to write in because I was doing end of the first beat of a line, um, rhyming word, end of the second beat of a line, rhyming word. Um, yeah, you have a lot more rhyming than I do. It was like A, 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 B, 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 A, B, A, A, B, B, C. And like, I, I. So then, is that where you got the word issue from? Was this from your rhyming dictionary? Perhaps. Ah, so that, well, that's good. That means I don't have to feel bad for having a little limited vocabulary because the only complicated word I got in here was existential. Oh, but I, I got to a point where like, I really wanted to use um, the word hump just because like, like Wednesday hump day is just like a a thing. Like you're over the hump. You're you're getting there. There's just not that many words that rhyme with it. No, that's true. I was gonna say because at one point you call yourself a frump, and I'm like, mm, you're a lot of things, but that's not one of the words I would go for. Well, on a Wednesday, I am. Was it just because it rhymed? <laughs> it, it did rhyme. It definitely helped. Yeah, I, I was briefly toying uh, before, like once I had the rhyme I wanted and I had the beat that I wanted, that I was toying with do- using different days uh, rather than the days of the week. Oh yeah, you told me you were going to make up days and do a whole thing. What happened? Um, the days I, I made up were kind of disparate from each other and I couldn't I couldn't think of a sort of narrative device to flow them through. Cause I, I had yesterday, today, tomorrow, New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day, birthday, and the solstice. I mean, yeah, like they're kind of a three and a four. Yeah, exactly. Although, actually, not the imagine it, because there's seven days between Christmas Eve and New Year's Day Eve. One of those. There's seven days in there anyway. And that would be kind of an interesting poem. Like that week, because that's always, it's known as the dead days. And I've read a whole bunch of books that are based on the premise that, like, the veil between our world and whatever, though, obviously, these are fantasy books. They're not like real books. But the, the veil is thinner, so things can get through and, like, stuff happens in those days. And you kind of feel a bit like they're, you know, there are days when the normal rhythm of life is kind of out of whack. So that would be an interesting one. But I think, yeah, otherwise you'd have quite a hard time. I would actually love to read somebody's poem on those seven dead days. Yeah. Well, now we know what we should have done. Great, so we can just go back and re-record the will be fine. Yeah, no one will ever know. <laughs> on the subject of reading other people's stuff. Yes. If you want more feminist retellings of traditionally masculine stories, I highly recommend you check out Angela Carter's book of Wayward Girls and Wicked Women, which is basically a bunch of fairy tales retold from a female perspective. Anna, what about you? How are you occupying yourself in shutdown time? Uh, I'm going to be watching uh, Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. Uh, it's a documentary about the uh, disability rights movement. Um, loads of stuff I just genuinely had no idea about that. I probably should have. Um, you know, I, I had someone describe the film to me and I thought that just kept coming to my mind is, why do we have to have the same civil rights movement every 10 years with a different group? Why can't we just have the rights? Because the world is not biased in our favour. It's really not. Um, And on that delightful, cheerful note, I think it's time that we say goodbye. 
So if you want to follow us on Twitter or Facebook, we are at Unemployed Harl on Twitter. That's at Unemployed Harl. And you can find us on Facebook as Unemployed Harlequin Productions. Uh, if you would like to submit any of your own poems for us to read out on the show following this week's topic, uh, the topic is Seven Days, Seven Lines, and the email address is submissions at unemployedharlequin.com. That's submissions at unemployedharlequin.com. I'm Jenna. And this has been Poetry for Those Who Don't. Thank you.